This is the English Heritage Podcast. Hello and thank you for downloading or streaming this new podcast into England's past. I'm Charles Rowe. You can listen to new episodes every Thursday. Plus, we have a back catalogue of more than 150 episodes on everything from Stonehenge to the Suffragettes and from Saxons to Sporting Heroes. Today, though, we're returning to one of our favourite topics of conversation on the podcast, which is castles. And joining us to discuss the evolution of Britain's fortresses before revealing his top five English heritage castles is someone who's spent his career writing about them. John Goodall is an historian, the architectural editor of Country Life magazine, and author of a new book called The Castle, A History. Welcome, John. Well, thank you very much for having me. It's a great pleasure to be joining this sort of illustrious lineup of people on this long-running podcast. Wonderful. Yeah. And I gather you're quite a fan. You do listen quite often. Yes, I listen with great pleasure. And I was astonished by just how many you've done. I mean, it's incredible. You know, 170, 180 or something. It's a really remarkable achievement. And I suppose also an illustration of what enormous riches English heritage has to offer us all. Absolutely. And we've got so much history to talk about. Well, let's start with the basics regarding castles then. How do you define one? What is a castle? Aha, this million dollar question. Well, I think this book is written really partly in the understanding that there's a conventional definition of a castle, which is the fortified residence of a lord. Now, that's absolutely right, particularly when you're talking about castles in the 11th, 12th and 13th centuries. But, of course, there are lots of buildings that people call castles later than that, and many of those medieval buildings have a subsequent history too, as great residences and fortifications. And I think it's very important to acknowledge that in conventional terms, it's been common to say that people who call things that aren't defensible castles have somehow got it wrong. They're not real castles with a capital R and a capital C. And I suppose my point would be that actually, if people call something a castle, it's our job as historians to explain why they call it a castle, rather than telling them they somehow got it wrong. So I have been trying to look at castles more generally, and I would define castles slightly differently. I would say that castles are the residences of the nobility, but buildings made magnificent through the trappings of fortification. That's to say, they don't necessarily need to work as strong fortifications. They can just use the architecture of fortifications, battlements, towers, turrets, as a way of expressing identity and giving themselves architectural grandeur. Because after all, castles are greatest houses that you can live in. And it is incredible that, you know, our own sovereign, this jubilee year, still officially resides in a castle, Windsor Castle. Now, none of us, I think, would try and defend Windsor Castle today, or not seriously. But nevertheless, no one would ever deny that it was a castle, even though it isn't defensible today. So I suppose I'm just trying to make the point that the castle is a very powerful idea. People have been building castles right through English history since the 11th century. We'll talk about that, I'm sure, in a moment. But they're still a kind of, in some places, they're lived in as much as the things we're familiar with in English heritage, which tend to be the great ruined castles. But it's a very wide spectrum and these buildings are built over a huge span of time. So I guess the next question is, how did you become interested in castles? Yeah, well, do you know, I mean, 
I like to pretend that I'm, you know, a serious academic, as it were, and I work hard and journalist, and I'm interested in these things for lots of historical reasons. But frankly, when I arrive at a castle, what I always want to do is I want to run to the top of the tallest turret and look out and see the view. <laughs> I, for me, <laughs> castles are inextricably bound up with this sort of experience of just discovery, seeing the landscape, discovering, for me, Britain. I spent a lot of my childhood abroad, in fact, and uh, I've always really relished the opportunity that gives me sometimes, I think, to see what British people often think as the ordinary as being somehow terribly exotic and marvellous. And I love the reality that when you look at castles, the company you're in, the weather you're experiencing, everything about them is so much fun and it lends so much to the to the visit as a whole. So I love that. I love that quality of exp- exploration, social experience, and you know, discovery. It's wonderful. And that's often really what drives me on to look at castles. So you're still a nine-year-old boy, aren't you, out with your parents on a Saturday Ooh, or a I Sunday? Think, I think that may be old for me. I'm more like seven. <laughs> oh, right, <okay. laughs> but still, you know, childlike in mindset. Yes, well, I, I feel that's the engaging bit. Of course, when you start to think about it, there's more and more and more and more and more you can discover. And it's wonderful that, in fact it's like a pond you can look at a reflection of a castle and it's on the surface but you can reach down as deep as you like into the water beneath it and there's always it's there's always more to go so i love the superficial things that what's attracted me and i don't think we should ever undervalue those but of course there's part of me also that wants to go deeper and deeper under the surface and that's great fun too so it's yes. both things into the moat or the dungeons you could say um, <laughs> i want to tease out a bit more about your interest then we've talked about sort of some of the romantic images there you know the appeal of standing at the top and looking at the fantastic view that sort of thing and also you know that the features of a castle you know whether it's the pond or the um, the moat or drawbridge whatever it is or the battlements you know these fantastic pieces of architecture but what else is it about castles that fascinate you still today well, I think that their variety is fascinating. The variety, both of their form, but also their experience. They are buildings that have two characters also, I think, in English history. One is the character of a seat of sort of legend and fantasy. The idea that castles are bound up with the foundation myths of the countryside. You know, I think you can still understand that when you see buildings even in ruin, such as Corfe or Kenilworth, these buildings that acquired legendary associations and they became sort of the bones of the kingdom in a way. But also their character as individual, their variety as individual experiences through history, the way in which they almost they gather moss, <laughs> the moss of narratives and stories. I think it's amazing, of course, how much we can know, how much we discover all the time about castles. I mean, they are such a live subject of interest and of research. But I think it's when I walk around castles also, I'm often amazed by the scale of our ignorance, you know, that we can identify episodes that happened in castles. We can know all sorts of things about them, but still the vast majority of what they, the history they've experienced is in a sense you know, lost to us. And I find that very intriguing. I love trying to scratch away the information to try and reveal what that history is. It's very interesting. And then I think the variety of their use today, as I've said already, you know, I, in my work as architect treasurer of country life, 
I'm trying to look at castles, not just castles in the in English heritage care. I'm trying to look across castles in every form, and there are you know many privately owned buildings, many buildings of institutional use, and so forth. And I find that variety of modern experience of them really fascinating, both as homes on the one hand and as earthworks and ruins on the other. Yes, that is really interesting, and I think um, people who are listening in the UK will probably be familiar with the Channel 4 programme Grand Designs, where I think a couple of follies and these sorts of things have been turned into homes, but they were, you know, originally, I suppose, quasi or proto-castles in a way. So I think that's an interesting thing for this discussion as well. Yes, I mean, I think that's certainly true. And of course, there are two of these great castles. I mean, I mentioned Windsor, but it's not alone, is it? Warwick Castle or Beaver, you know, where these buildings have just really effectively been in continuous occupation for breathtaking periods of time. I mean, it's really, really astonishing when you stop to think about it. And even in, you know, less appealing things, somewhere like Lancaster Castle, you know, I mean, it only closed as a prison a few years ago. <laughs> and it's the last medieval castle in Britain to have served as a prison. There it was in the very centre of Lancaster. No one could visit it. And uh, it's had a judicial role for 900 years. I mean, absolutely unbelievable. Wow. Uh, but now we can all go and, you know, visit it and enjoy it. I mean, um, so again, that I suppose touches on this idea of variety of experience. They're all different, these buildings, physically and in their experience yes. of history. You mentioned this uh, breathtaking period of time. So now I'm going to ask you to take a sharp intake of breath <laughs> and go back deep into history, hundreds and hundreds of years, and tell us when and where did the story of Britain's first castles begin? So the story of the English castle or the British castle is really bound up with two episodes. First of all, there is a phenomenon in the late Carolingian period in Europe, where very powerful figures begin to build themselves houses which they can fortify. And associated with these castle buildings is a particular system of land holding. It's called the feudal system, after the fact that they would take a great estate and they would split it up into fees. And those fees were knights' fees. They were given out, bodies of land given out to people to be specialist fighters or knights. And being a knight required long training. It was very expensive to equip you. You needed a horse and armor and other things. And so a great landholding could basically raise a small military force from all these distributed fees to your followers. Now, those fees and those estates were used to construct great buildings at their centrepiece, which were castles. Now, at the Norman Conquest, I mean, this is slightly complicated because there are fortified buildings, private residences in England before the Conquest, but it's quite clear that at the Conquest, this system and the buildings associated with it are imposed upon England by our Norman conquerors. But they actually kind of appear in England by stages. <laughs> so in 1066, when William the Conqueror comes to England, he builds what appeared to be the first castles in the context of his conquest, the immediate campaign at the Battle of Hastings. He lands, if you remember, at Pevensey, which is, in fact, historically a Roman fort on the south coast. And it's important to remember that in the 11th century, Roman architecture, these monumental Roman remains, were still the biggest man-made objects in Britain. 
And so it's no coincidence that his invading army lands at Pevensey. They almost certainly spend the first night on English soil inside the fortifications of the Roman fort, where some sources say they build a castle. And they then move along the coast to Hastings, where the Bayer Tapestry, this 11th century embroidered narrative tapestry, shows an image of people building a castle at Hastings. And it also has this rather wonderful detail of two men fighting with shovels underneath the castle. <laughs> and right. We have no idea what they're fighting about. But what's really important about that, I think, is it reminds you that building castles is a really intrusive undertaking. You're forcing people to work on military installations. So he builds a castle at Hastings, and then fights the Battle of Hastings. He expects the English to submit to him. They don't. He marches in a great predatory arc around London and eventually forces the English to submit to him. Now, in the course of that entire arc, we are not told of any castle building at all. Indeed, it seems that Pevensey and Hastings are both basically castles constructed to secure his lines of communication back to Normandy in case everything goes disastrously wrong. But when that's done, he thinks the English are going to accept him as their king. But of course, the English rebel over and over and over and over again. And he begins fighting all these different campaigns around the country in which he gets to cities or towns, major towns, and he starts planting castles inside the walls, the fortifications of these towns, in order to control the population. And he and does that them. most famously. Yes, indeed. And he does <laughs> that most famously in London <laughs> with the Tower of London. But he also does it in York, in Warwick, uh, in Lincoln. And in the course of building those things, again, you know, huge sections of the town are demolished. At Lincoln, we're told by the Doomsday Survey that 144 houses are destroyed to create the castle. So he plants these castles, but then eventually he loses his patience altogether with the English. And at that moment, he basically begins systematically confiscating estates from the English. And at the end of 15 years, there has taken place this enormous transfer of lands from the Anglo-Saxon nobility, the English nobility, to a group of a, the lion's share goes to a group of about 70 people, lay and ecclesiastic, Normans, and they organise their newly acquired estates, this enormous influx of wealth around a fee system, a feudal system with castles and estates which supply them with knights around the castles. And the castles are a kind of symbol of that system. Now, what's interesting about it, of course, is that it's those castles with the associated estates that become the sort of institutional bones of English dynastic politics for the next four or five centuries, because they're castles with such enormous wealth attached to them. And the campaign castles that William the Conqueror built they sort of wither away. You know, they're not, they become much less important relatively unless they have land attached to them. And so it's that connection between land and buildings that gives the castle longevity. It makes it exist. It makes it survive. It makes people invest in these buildings. So it's that change. So this is a long answer, but you see, there's a really interesting change. It goes from being something that's just to do with military campaigning to being to do with controlling the economy and uh, the political fabric of the kingdom. 
Absolutely. And going back to your original experience of wanting to run up the steps and or climb up the steps, I should say, safely and uh, have, a, have a look at the views, um, you know, I've just been taking notes of what you've been saying there. And, uh, you know, we sort of got a definition of a castle in the 21st century as a visitor experience, as a place where people used to live, but people now visit and enjoy as part of the nation's heritage. It's a romantic thing. It's an adventure thing. It's a family thing. It's an architecture thing. It's a views thing. But when we talk about the definition of a castle or the perception of a castle in the Norman period, for example, in the 10 hundreds and 11 hundreds and, and later, it's about conquest, control, taxation, wealth, acquisition of land, fortification, knights, defence, power, strength, permanence. This is how we get different definitions of castles, really, in a way, don't we? It is. I, I mean, I think that's true. And, uh, you know, it's, it is really fascinating how our perceptions of castles do shift. And I think it's very important to acknowledge that castles through time are not necessarily the same thing. But what castles are, you should never lose sight of their roots because the roots are where they come from. But how the plant grows can be quite different from the roots, if you see what I mean. So the first Norman castle but it's not quite because it's a bit more complicated. But for William the Conqueror, the first Norman castle he builds in England is in Hastings. It's a temporary construction. It isn't important as a long-standing building. But by the end of his reign, he's putting down the foundations of buildings that will, you know, literally in the case of the Tower of London, you know, last to the present day and remain symbols of royal authority in the 21st century city of London. The origins are important. That doesn't mean the Tower of London is the same as it was in mm. 10, you know, 1072 or whenever it's uh, 1068, whenever it's begun. But the origins are important. Absolutely. And I think a lot of people might be surprised at those origins at such a key place on the British map. Well, let's talk now about the architecture of castles and how they kind of evolve over time. We were talking just now about the, the Norman influence and Jeremy Ashby, one of our English heritage historians, spoke to us on, on a previous episode about castles, about how they evolved. And he talked about the Mott and Bailey Castle, which is this Norman invention. So could you sort of explain a bit more about the Mott and Bailey Castle, how castles evolved? Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, many of the very earliest castles that are built are constructed in emergency circumstances, as it were, in times of war. And, and the material of warfare in the Middle Ages, and long subsequently too, is timber and earth. So when you build a castle in timber and earth, one of the ways in which you can do it is to basically dig a ditch, which forms an enclosure called a bailey. And characteristically, castles tend to have a dominating tower. And in an earth and timber castle, you often construct basically an artificial hill, which is called a mot. That word is actually related to the English word moat, as in the water feature. Those two things are linguistically related. But the mot is basically an artificial mound, and you construct on top of that mound a timber fortification to form a tower. So that's a Motten Bailey castle, essentially a, an enclosure and a dominating hill with the tower on top of it. But other kinds of castles in England begin to be constructed very rapidly in the 1080s, really, onwards in stone. And I think it's very important to emphasise that in the 11th century, stone is not only very difficult to build in, this unyielding, hard material, but it's also redolent of the world of imperial Rome. 
as I've said already, you know, the biggest structures that stand in Britain in the 11th century are masonry structures, are all Roman remains. So when you build in Rome, you're kind of evoking that Roman world. And not only that, but at places such as the Tower of London or at Colchester, there are begun towers of stone, which is a building type that frankly nobody had ever seen in England before. It again borrows from continental example in the 9th and 10th centuries in northern France. But these tower-like buildings, of which Colchester and the Tower of London are two examples, begins a tradition in England of building these massive, thick-walled stone buildings. They are constructed often over very long periods of time. I mean, the Tower of London itself, for example, is probably constructed over a period of at least 30 years. I think we're very used to the idea of people designing buildings and then just constructing them in very short periods of time. In the Middle Ages, lots of buildings are kind of works in progress over decades. And these great stone towers are a pretty good case in point. You know, you can start them quickly but uh, they often take a long time to finish. And they're not actually, usually buildings begun in response to a crisis. When you're building in stone, you're building for the future. They are emblems of political control and wealth and power. We know staggeringly little in some ways about what really went on in great towers of stone and how they related particularly to the buildings in these fortified enclosures around them, these baileys, you know, it's a subject of you know intense debate you know what what was the function of many of these interiors how were they organized how were they lived in mm. what is important i think to say about them is that we can visit these buildings we often call them keeps they were in the middle ages often called simply great towers we can go into them and think they look very gaunt and severe well, I suppose if they were being used domestically, they would have been dressed for use. You know, they would have had fabrics on the walls and furniture and all these other things. But the other thing that I think is very difficult to rescue is that people thought that they were actually marvellous and extraordinary. And there's a wonderful anecdote about someone in France in the 10th century building a, a tower at a place called Ivry-la-Bataille. And it's in fact, a, a woman is the patroness of this building. And when the mason has built it, the story goes in the 12th century that she kills the mason because she doesn't want him to build anybody else anything that's like this. <laughs> so <laughs> okay. this idea that these are actually kind of marvellous and extraordinary things, I think is very difficult for us to rescue today, but they did seem that in, in this period. You've talked there about the uh, design of the sort of the standard keep. Would the early design of a tower, a keep, have been a cuboid shape or would it have been a round cylindrical shape? So early on, it's quite clear that the, the most important keep in England is the Tower of London. And it's almost certainly based in design, in fact, on the keep of the Dukes of Normandy in their capital at Rouen in Normandy. It's very likely that those two buildings, that the Tower of London copies the design of the keep in Rouen. So that initial building is an architectural borrowing in England, and it's rectangular, but with this very odd detail of a chapel in one corner. So there's one corner that projects out with a sort of semicircle where the altar of the chapel is. It's a very distinctive shape. Hmm. Now, there is a sort of subsequent story to that inclusion of a chapel in the keep, but basically, very quickly, the English decide that what they really want is pure rectangular great towers. And those rectangular great towers also have 
roofs countersunk in the top of the building. And what that means is that when you stand back from them, they still look square. You can't see the roof. It doesn't pitch above the top of the building. So basically, you just have massive rectangular structures. And people carry on in England building massive rectangular structures as the centre of castles right through into the 19th century. I mean, this idea that if you build a castle, you want one dominating tower is incredibly powerful in English architecture. And in the middle, throughout the Middle Ages, the preference is for square-topped towers. And just off the top of my head, you know, you could look at a 15th century building such as Tattershall Castle in Lincolnshire, which has the similar form, or Bolsover, which is one of English Heritage's castle in the early 17th century, where there's another tower of this kind, basically in the tradition of the Tower of London and and the English Keep. So that runs right the way through. And if you wanted a 19th century example, you you could go to Wales, to Penryn, where in the Regency, there is basically a copy of Castle Headingham's great tower in Essex, another great and important 12th century tower. So there's this idea that a castle is almost defined by this great dominating towers of stone. It's not universal, but it's a recognised architectural vocabulary for great castles all the way through. Charting this development then, how do we get the kind of features that we might normally associate with castles, which would be turrets, moats, drawbridges, that sort of thing? When when do they start being introduced? Because obviously the Mott and Bailey is a very basic kind of castle. They obviously develop from there. Many of these details of castles, it's actually very difficult to tell. I mean, ditches and moats, I think we can be fairly certain that they really belong with the whole tradition of the very earliest castles, this idea of digging a ditch and it often naturally floods. You you know, you don't need to do anything uh, to make that happen. Other things such as drawbridges, portcullises, it's actually very difficult to know when some of these things were invented. I mean, off the top of my head, the earliest example of a portcullis can be found in the keep at Rochester, another English heritage castle in Kent. And that has in the main entrance clearly what was a drop gate, and it may well have been a, a grid-like portcullis. Battlements, of course, are a Roman thing and are recycled in castle architecture because Roman yes. things are always admired. So, I mean, many of the basic ideas, I think, are very, very early. The way in which they're ornamented and developed in stone, as I say, this much more permanent material, is quite difficult to relate that stone architecture to timber buildings, things that are lost, things that we don't really know about. But again, there every now and again, you see images and you realise that there are ideas that have extraordinary continuity. So, for example, the Bayer Tapestry, one of the castles shown being besieged there, in fact, on the continent, when it surrenders, there's an, an image of one of the knights in the castle leaning out and giving the keys of the castle on the end of his lance point to <laughs> the Normans who are besieging it. And it's sort of extraordinary to be re- reminded that the idea of giving up the keys of a castle it was going on in the 11th century. You know, that's not a new idea. Yes. It's sort of breathtaking. And if it wasn't for that image, we wouldn't really know about it. So when was the most prolific period of castle building in Britain? When, there was a, when was there a lot of building going on of castles? Well, the really peculiar answer to that question is it's probably in the mid-12th century. So I've already tried to explain how England is divided up between these great magnates after the conquest, and they give property to their followers who will serve them in war and also perform garrison duty in their great castles. 
But we know from the example, particularly of Richmond, for example, in Yorkshire, that these figures, when they were given a certain number of knights' fees, they might also build their own castles. So you have a great castle, Richmond, spawning offspring. And in the sort of mid-12th century, there are huge numbers of castles being built by these figures often related to great castles, and also, of course, castles being built in the context of the civil war that is fought between Stephen and Matilda, which is in large part a castle war. So actually, if you were to look overall at the numbers of castles in England, there is in fact a kind of peak in, let's say, the mid 12th century, and then a steady decline thereafter in the number of castles. The story of the vast majority of castles in the United Kingdom is of gradual use, abandonment, decay, and disappearance. I mean, there are quite a large number of castles. We don't even know what they were called. We know about them as earthworks, or we know that they were there, but we have no idea who built them, when they were built exactly, or when they disappeared. They're probably of the 12th century, late 11th, 12th century, and they've just vanished. Wow, that's remarkable. Well, hopefully we'll be able to discover more about them when uh, some ground is broken by some archaeologists at some point in the future. (laughs) Obviously, you've mentioned that uh, this prolific period of castle building in Britain was peaked around the mid-12th century. So who would have been the monarch who was around that peak? Well, it was not really the king who's building. I suppose that's the point. This is about people further down the social scale having the means to build and the incentive to build. And when there's the civil war fought in the 1140s between King Stephen and the Empress Matilda, who's the daughter of Henry I, there's this you know long and brutal civil war fought between these two figures. And it has a profound effect on castle building not least because what they do, what both these figures do, is they try and offer to their supporters the estates associated with particular castles as prizes. And they also hand out earldoms, just like modern governments do, hand out titles and seats in the House of Lords. They try and give these things to their followers. And very often, ownership of an individual estate is given by the two sides to two different people who then proceed to fight over who actually has control of it. And so this is a very (laughs) good example of how you might have temporary and permanent castles. You might have a place such as Durham. A bishop dies, and Durham, of course, is a very powerful and rich sea. And there are two groups of people who both try and put in a successor, and they fight over Durham. (laughs) And the person who's not able successfully to take Durham Castle basically builds a whole series of temporary castles, some in churches and the fortification of churches is very common as castles in the civil war and they fight over it and eventually when one side wins all the temporary buildings vanish and what's left are the great buildings that they were fighting over if you see what i mean so you get this in the civil war you get this extraordinary dynamic between the things that really own the property and the attempt to wrest control of that property from your opponent Mm. This is a broad question, but how did life within the walls of castles change over the centuries? So I suppose this has a lot to do with why a castle is built, what kind of person is living in a castle. 
there has always been one element of castle life which is to do with the life of the richest and most privileged in society. I mean, castles, that's basically the nobility, that's who lives in castles. And there is therefore a streak of, in the very greatest castles, there is a streak of that luxurious life, a delight also in hunting on the land. This mark of ownership of land is bound up with hunting and the right to kill the animals and creatures that live on it and eat them. So there's at the very highest level, there is always a, a sort of luxurious life. And I think in some ways that was perhaps very constant until the Civil War and then was interrupted and changed thereafter, the Civil War in the, in the mid-17th century. At other levels, I mean, I think one of the things that does change is for great noble families, of course, they're living with huge households of people in which servants' service is not menial. It's not being done by lowly people. If you're a great nobleman, you're served at table by gentlemen. And so castles also become important centres of grand and large-scale life as a whole. Further down the pecking order, I mean, I think castles often, you know, some of the first ones to be abandoned are the ones in which people don't really have the means to maintain them or, or the means of living in, or the need for them as fortifications. They sort of just wither away. But then there are also, on top of that, I've just already mentioned Lancaster, there are certain uses of castles for judicial use and things like that, which are absolutely continuous through time. So the important thing is that castles are not just social places, they're also administrative places. They're places you raise money, you impose laws, you do all kinds of things. So all those different streams and the way they use vary enormously. And royal castles, of course, the king hardly ever visits any of them at any time. And so they mm. become centres of administration in a way that a great nobleman's castle would be visited and used all the time. Yes, that's interesting. So it depends on who's living there or who owns it, basically, is, is the short answer. Yes. Um, and again, that bring out that sense of variety of experience. We call these buildings by one word. But I mean, in fact, they are an enormously broad canvas. You know, they are, you must never mistake the fact that they're really all the same thing, because they have points mm -hmm. of connection, but they do have very, very varied um, experience in historical terms. Okay, so here's a question, which I hope you can provide an answer to. Do, do we know when the last castle in England was built? Well, depending on how you define it, of course. I mean, I would say that one of the m last major castle building programmes was the castle building programme in Windsor Castle after the fire in 1992. It's a gothic, you know, the, the reconstruction of St George's Hall and the debates about what the building should look like. It's really extraordinary to see how that looks back to ideas of statehood, identity, craftsmanship that echo, you know, right through the centuries. I suppose the point I'm trying to make is that castles aren't all about the past. <laughs> you know, mm. people do still live in them, still use them. And Windsor is very definitely a castle as a seat of the sovereign. So there are, you know, major late 20th century buildings, certainly. And I'm sure the 21st century may well bring its own, you know, major works to buildings of this kind, particularly after disasters. You may think that's a slight cheat response to it. But I mean, I just think it's important to acknowledge that when we're looking at many buildings in the Middle Ages, when we talk about them as great castles, we're often not looking at a castle built afresh at a particular moment in time. We're often looking at a building that's had a history before it's rebuilt in the form that we see it today. So mm. I would say Windsor you know, really is fair game in that regard. Yes. So I suppose, is it a greater piece across 
the kingdom, whether it's the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland or it's or it's the English kingdom that causes the era of castles to come to an end. Is, is, the, is that what stops castle building in a sense that we might understand? Well, as I say, I don't think it has stopped. I mean, I just think the Normans bring castle building to England and they take it from England to Ireland, Wales and Scotland. And in all those different places, it has its own distinctive history and resonances. But I think in England, it's very important to acknowledge that while there are ruined castles that English heritage looks after, and also all kinds of other castle buildings, that there are still some great survivors amongst these castles. And I think it's as living buildings, they still exist and shape our lives. And I've given the example at one end of the spectrum of Lancaster, still serving as a jail in the twentieth, late 20th century, in fact, the early 21st century, and Windsor as the seat of the head of our state, which is still operating as such. I mean, it seems to me they haven't disappeared. Love Mm. it or loathe it, they're still there. When you consider other castles beyond those two, what are the features that you like to look out for when you're on a visit? I enjoy going through buildings in the sequence that you're meant to see them. If you're going going to whether a ruin or an existing castle, if you try and work out how spaces would have been revealed to people as they walk through these buildings. I think that's really fascinating and a really interesting way of looking at a, at a, at a building, trying mm. to work out where the hall is, how you walk through it, where the kitchens relate to that, but then also where the buildings and domestic buildings beyond that develop. And then, of course, I mean, it's as the stamp collector that I am, I'm always fascinated by little technical details of how buildings work. And again, in castles, that varies from, I don't know, there's wonderful work done by Peter Breers, a scholar called Peter Breers, on medieval kitchens and cooking. And it is quite extraordinary when you go around ruined kitchens of the Middle Ages to see the details of where water systems were fixed and how, you know, the stoops for gravy, they, you know, they can still exist uh, today, you know, carved in stone. It's quite amazing to see that and to have somebody like that point out those kinds of details. So all the way from that, all the way through to rather arcane architectural details such as mouldings, which interest people, stamp collectors such as myself. When you say mouldings, what does that mean? Mouldings, how the shape in which the edges of doors and windows and arches are cut, and it can tell you all kinds of things about their date and who might have designed them. But I mean, it's a highly technical and essentially very boring undertaking. (laughs) Of course, I love it. (laughs) I quite like the idea of, obviously, the colour of the castle and the type of stone that's been used and the size of the stone. I think that's an interesting feature for people to look out for when they visit various sites, because it can vary depending on how the stone has been quarried and where in the country that natural stone lies. I think that's exactly right. It reveals qualities of the of the topography. Um, and again, I suppose that's a really interesting detail of castles is they are often buildings created out of the fabric of the landscape. So you're quite right. I think that does illustrate all kinds of things about the place. It's a really fascinating manifestation in architecture of the locality. Mm. Well, when we consider those points that we've both just discussed there and these features, let's talk now about your top five English heritage castles. Now, as we know, English heritage looks after a huge number of castles across the country. But uh, what are your favourites? I gather we're going to start with Richmond Castle in North Yorkshire. (laughs) Yes, this is a clear favourite. I mean, I have done a lot of uh, work on Richmond, but 
I also think it's, you know, it is one of the best preserved 11th century masonry castles in Europe. The walls of Richmond Castle are extraordinary, and we know that they're being completed, certainly, or under construction, certainly, by the late 1080s. So it's one of the very, very first generation of castles to be completed in stone in England. And what's also very interesting about it in relationship to the conquest is that Richmond is one of these buildings that expresses the way in which the Normans create the bones of the kingdom, because it always used to be the case when people looked at Richmond that they saw a triangular castle in plan. And indeed, if you draw out the walls of Richmond Castle, they basically form a triangle. But what had not been appreciated before work was done on the topography of Richmond as a whole was that Richmond Castle, in fact, is like the slice of cake cut out of an enormous circular enclosure. And that enclosure incorporates all the house plots of the town. So it's, in fact, a planned town on a great circular plan from which the castle is cut out with a marketplace in the centre. And at Richmond, what's been created by its founding figure, the Duke of Brittany, who fights on the battlefield of Hastings, is in fact an economic unit with all these estates spread around it, which bring wealth, helps construct the castle and helps man the castle. So it's a wonderful sort of exposition of how the conquest created these great estates from which castles were generated physically and how they operated and came to command the economic and political landscape of post-conquest England. Very much so, yes. As you described earlier in in the podcast, tied up with the Norman Conquest, and also it's a castle within a community. It's not a castle that belongs to someone who's very standoffish and is on a hilltop somewhere, away from everyone. It's on a hilltop, but it's right in the town. So that's quite an important thing to mention, I think, isn't it? And the fact as well that it overlooks the river, and obviously it's got very tall walls as well. So it's sort of taking advantage of the local geography, which itself is very imposing, but it adds extra to the geography. It is, and and Richmond is the most beautiful place. I mean, it's a town where you can really see the medieval topography of the town. It has a very early 18th century obelisk in the middle of the town square. It's a very picturesque and beautiful place, as well as a living place. I love going to Richmond, and I remember going there as a child and loving it very much. Well, let's go down south now to number four in your list of top five English heritage castles. Uh, we're in Hampshire now, and which castle's this? This is Porchester Castle, which is, of course, uh, created out of what were termed one of the Saxon shore forts. I've already mentioned that Roman buildings are defining man-made features of the Norman landscape. Well, Porchester is also one of the best-preserved Roman forts in Europe. It has its complete circuit of Roman walls standing. And at the conquest, it was with its connection to the sea and to the continent, it was obviously an incredibly important site for the Normans to occupy. It's built in the 280s, I think, during the reign of the Roman Emperor Carausius, and it's never probably out of occupation. You know, it's occupied clearly in the Anglo-Saxon period, but the Normans come and they constitute it as a castle. They also create within it an Augustinian priory in the early 12th century. Again, one of the things, if you think of knights as rendering military dues to a castle, well, 
the founders of castles also gave out land and gave them to religious foundations and those religious foundations paid religious or devotional dues to the lord of the castle and so in Porchester you get this extraordinary arrangement where the Roman walls enclose the site you have the castle the inner bailey of the castle in one corner and in the other corner you have the parish church of Porchester which is in fact the remains of an Augustinian abbey which is then subsequently actually moved out. But you have, as it were, within this Roman embrace, a castle and a church, these two levers of the military might and and religious reform, the two levers of the Norman conquest, the way in which they reshape England and its society. It's a really magnificent juxtaposition. And again, very accessible. I mean, you can walk straight through this site and uh, although you have to get tickets to go into the castle section that most of it is still open land and the Augustinian church is the parish church of, of Porchester. And I like the fact that it repurposes something that was pre-existing. I think that's an interesting point for Porchester Indeed, very Castle. topical for the present moment. Yes, <laughs> Indeed. Recycling. Uh, exactly. As, uh, as we've mentioned a few times on the podcast of stone and these sorts of things. Let's now move on to Herefordshire, Goodrich Castle. Well, just a most magnificent 13th century building and set so spectacularly above the River Wye. It's a building I've really enjoyed. In fact, with Jeremy Ashby, who's contributed to this, I mean, I remember going to, to, I think for the first time with him to it many, many years ago. It's such a perfect expression of what many people imagine a medieval castle to be with its four corner towers and a, a Romanesque keep encased within them. And the towers sit on the natural rock ditch with these great spurs of stone that drop to the ground. It's a wonderful detail where the the towers start at the bottom as square in plan, and as they rise up, they turn into circles. And it's such a dramatic detail and treatment. It's it's really magnificent architecture, I think. Still magnificent now, but um, quite ruined by the looks of things from, from the pictures. Indeed, and uh, it's destroyed in the Civil War during a siege. There's a parliamentarian siege of the Royalist garrison. And very significantly, there is there um, one of the last surviving, if not the last surviving, example of a mortar cast locally by the parliamentarians during the siege. So a mortar is a kind of gun that instead of firing the cannonball sort of straight along the uh, parallel to the ground it lobs them up into the air and it lobs shells that have fuses which explode and these are fantastically damaging to architecture and long used in siege warfare as a way of destroying fortifications and of course Goodrich as with so many castles it's an occupied building until the civil war and then the civil war it is besieged and devastating damage is done to it and it's deliberately destroyed after the siege. I also think it's important to acknowledge that Goodrich is very important and subsequently very important as one of the places that the Wye Valley is one of the places where the romantic and picturesque movement in the 19th century, late 18th and early 19th century really gained traction. Lots of tourists would travel along the Wye to look at these beautiful ruined remains such as Tintin further down the river or Goodrich and so Goodrich also has a kind of aftermath as a place where the English taste for the ruinous is developed and that taste of course has affected the world over time and castles are tremendously important in formulating that interest where you have a ruined castle that lends atmosphere to a landscape and reminds people of kind of human 
shallowness of human achievement. And despite its ruinous state, it still looks very solid with its quite square plan and its um, two cylindrical towers, which have been buttressed at the bottom with um, very straight-angled triangles, which I think is, right. uh, is really important to the fact that it survived destruction in the Civil War. I think those are very important architectural features. A very attractive-looking castle. Yes, it's magnificent. It's absolutely magnificent. Now, the next one in your top five list of English heritage castles is one which I visited with my family when I was a lot younger. And um, it's in a little village, effectively, in the northeast of England, in Northumberland. And it's Walkworth Castle. It's been featured on the TV, even in recent programmes, I've noticed, on the BBC. And it's a very pretty place. Can you tell us a bit more about what attracts you to Walkworth Castle? Well, as you say, I mean, Walkworth, if Walkworth were anywhere other than it is, and thank goodness it is where it is, it would be overwhelmed. I mean, it would be one of the most popular castles anywhere at all. It's set, again, rather like Richmond, it has a very clear relationship to the village of Walkworth. So it's set on a spur within a tight loop of the River Coquet, and it's on the neck of that loop, so controlling the river crossing and there's a fortified bridge in fact at the bottom of the village street at the other end of that loop and all the houses the medieval building plots run up the length of that main street at right angles to it like fish bones running off the spine of the fish up to the castle at the top and the road loops round the castle underneath the castle and the centerpiece of the castle is this extraordinary 14th century tower, almost certainly built to celebrate the elevation of Henry Percy to the title of the Earl of Northumberland in 1377 by Richard II. And again, this idea of the tower, like the Tower of London, as being a kind of emblem of, of a castle and of, of noble estate. And that building is extraordinarily complex. It's like a three-dimensional jigsaw puzzle in which all the elements of a house are necessary for grand living, the hall, the kitchens, the services, the chapel, have all been sort of plugged together in a three-dimensional jigsaw puzzle to form a tower, in fact, on a cross-shaped plan very, very extraordinary. And a little sort of addenda to that, the uh, 19th century French architect, Viollet le Duc, who restored Carcassonne and Pierrefond in France, which your listeners may know, he was vastly impressed by Walkworth. And he actually published a design of a modern nobleman's house based on this 14th century tower. Completely extraordinary. The castle itself has, you know, ruined domestic buildings as well. It's very dramatically set. And as a little kind of addition, if you go to Walkworth in the summer months, you really ought to walk down to the River Coquette and walk along the edge of the River Coquette and you can get a little ferryman boat who will row you across the river and take you to the Hermitage, which is a 14th century rock-cut chapel with figures of the nativity of the Virgin, the Mother of Christ, a sort of Christmas scene carved in one window, very badly worn now. But it's absolutely marvellous being rowed across the river and jumping out and visiting this little rock-cut chapel. Indeed, just as I was saying with Goodrich, that rock-cut chapel inspired an entire literature in the late 18th century, which is really a kind of romantic literature about you know, medieval life in England, which really captured people's imagination. So it's mm. a marvellous composition, a medieval town, <laughs> the castle, and then this little hermitage just over the river. 
Yes, I've got a bit of a soft spot for Walkworth Castle, I must say, due to the (laughs) familial sort of memories that I have of the place, uh, trying to explore it. But I think it's also very interesting to look at in terms of the stonework, but also the way that the towers have been formed, because they almost look, from the pictures, half hexagonal, I suppose I would describe. They are not round, they are not square, like the traditional keep we described earlier. They've got that sort of interest. The other thing that jumps out at me is the fact that the windows in that tower and around the building are wider and they're taller than you would expect for a castle that is typically militaristic with arrow slits and that sort of thing. So I think that's an interesting point to sort of bring out that Walkworth is later on in the evolution of castles, isn't it? It is. And I mean, I think it's important to say that it is a building that has never ceased to be admired. It is one of the smartest pieces of late 14th century architecture you would find anywhere. The different windows, you can tell from the outside what kind of interiors the windows are lighting because they're in different forms. And I suppose this comes back to the point we were making before, is that people have always looked at these castles in purely military terms. And the point is that, in fact, they are about it about those things but they're about an enormous amount more this is about really luxurious living and it's about you know how you can use architecture in in, you know ingenious ways and the ruin of walkworth is all to do with dynastic politics it's nothing to do with it being destroyed in the civil war or not being admired people thought this was even in the 17th and 18th centuries they thought it was an extraordinary building and in the 19th century the Duke of Northumberland actually created hunting lodges in the upper rooms of the castle keep which are now accessible, they weren't for a long time, they remained in the control of the Annick estate but they are now I believe accessible. So again this is not the story of a ruin it's a story of a consistently admired and reused building. It's, I think it's just to make that point you know, it's really really sophisticated uh, design and architecture. Okay, well, the last one is Ashby de la Zouche Castle in Leicestershire. So it's kind of, if you're looking at the map, it's uh, on the A42 connecting Birmingham to the southwest and then Nottingham to the northeast. It's kind of on that diagonal line between those two places. And of course, (laughs) it's in England and yet it sounds very French. That's one of the first things you'd notice about it. What fascinates you about Ashby de la Zouche Castle? You're right, it's right in the navel of England in a way. It's in the centre of England and it's not a very well-known building. It was a prodigy building of the late 15th century at a period of time where people think that people are no longer building castles, but in fact they absolutely are. It's built by a man called William Lord Hastings who's given enormous power by Edward IV in the 1460s and 1470s and he basically becomes a virtual regent of the Midlands of England. He creates a whole network of castles to control his vast estates of which Ashby de la Zouche is the most important. But when Edward IV dies William is murdered in the well he's executed in the Tower of London in what are clearly trumped up circumstances by the future Richard III, who realises that this elder statesman is the principal obstruction of his route to the throne. 
So he's summarily removed from a conference with the king and just has his head chopped off immediately. The king says he won't sit down to dinner before he sees his head off. And this unfortunate man is beheaded. So he builds Ashpelazush as the sort of seat of his authority. It's never quite finished in his lifetime. And it's besieged as part, along with the town, during the Civil War in the 1640s. And at the end of the Civil War, they demolish the great tower, the keep, that William Lord Hastings has built in the set, as the centrepiece of the castle. And what survives today is basically one half of that keep with a great formal garden, which is now represented by earthworks and hillocks, probably of the uh, 16th century. And I was very privileged a number of years ago both to be involved in excavations of that garden area, trying to find out what the garden, this large formal garden, looked like. But I was also able to go to the Huntington Library in California and go through some of the papers relating to the castle. And, you know, it's a really sort of fascinating story, discovering what happens to Ashby de la Zouche in the 19th century and the way in which this castle is made very popular by the writings of the novelist Walter Scott, who writes a novel you may know of called Ivanhoe, at which one of the crucial scenes takes place at Ashby de la Zouche. And after the novel is published, Ashby becomes a major tourist attraction. They set up a spa town to get water with, for you to take the water with buildings named after the heroes of Ivanhoe. And um, the castle has never ceased to be a tourist attraction since. And it's again this interesting relationship between the history of the castle as it's created, but also what subsequently happens to it. And, you know, Walter Scott's romantic revival of castle ruins is one of the things that really has shaped our modern appreciation of, of ruins. You know, he's very, very influential in encouraging us to think of ruins as places where history has happened, where people lived real lives that we could identify with. It's a very, very powerful strain still in the way that English heritage, of course, presents its own monuments. You know, English heritage tries to persuade people that you know, these are real places where people have lived, loved and died. They're not just remote ruins. They touch us and they touch the people who lived there. They do, and you can get um, up close to it, even though it's a ruin. Uh, one of the key features, if you go onto the Ashby de la Zouche Castle webpage on the English Heritage website, is that you can still climb to the top of the half-ruined tower, which I think is quite an appealing thing. There's also a lively audio tour that you can enjoy there. And another point, I think, that's interesting from a sort of evolutionary perspective in terms of castle-making is that the property began as a manor house in the 12th century and then reached this castle status in the 15th century, which I think is uh, really interesting how it developed over time and, and stood for hundreds of years and is still standing now, despite obviously being a little bit, well, past its peak, shall we say. <laughs> um, and there are wonderful, and the, the other major standing tower there is the kitchen tower, where you can see the scale, the industrial scale of cooking in a great castle and you know it's very important to remember that the very rich have always enjoyed their food and um, at Ashby the kitchens there are extraordinarily large and ambitiously conceived you know, on, on a royal scale and a reminder of the scale of life of, the, of these buildings. Well, we've counted down then Richmond Castle in North Yorkshire, Porchester Castle in Hampshire, Goodrich Castle in Herefordshire, Walkworth Castle in Northumberland and Ashby de la Zouch Castle in Leicestershire. But which one is actually your favourite? Well, I have to plumb, like you, for Walkworth out of that list. I love that section of the, the Northumbrian 
coastline. There are other magnificent things to see there. I have very happy family memories of going there, both with my own children and with my parents. And um, I just think that it's that combination of a town, a castle, and the river and the hermitage in this amazing setting. You can actually just see it from the train if you know where to look when you're thundering through, particularly in the winter. Whenever I go up and down on that East Coast line, I always do. I, I look up for Bambra, Lindisfarne, and Durham, and Morpeth, but the other one is always Walkworth. It's just marvellous to see the watchtower poking right up above the castle, and uh, I always think very fondly of it. So that would be my absolute favourite. <laughs> Some of our listeners, John, are probably wondering, how many castles have you visited in your lifetime? <laughs> so lot. what's the number of uh, castles visited and ticked off? I have no idea. I have no idea. And that's another wonderful thing, isn't it? That it's bottomless. I mean, in a way, it just goes on and on. And, you know, you can always be surprised by new things. So, But, uh, I mean, I just visit historic buildings all the time and not just castles and sometimes that yields surprising results in terms of castles by not even looking for them they sometimes turn up. Do you have any particular castles that you definitely want to see this year in 2022? This year I don't know whether there are things particularly this year but I do I mean there are castles that I would still very much like to see within the UK. They're not of course English heritage castles because I have visited those but there are one or two private ones Longford Castle in Wiltshire which has an important collection which is open sometimes in relationship to the National Gallery but that's an Elizabethan castle a triangular castle really really weird and wonderful which I have actually never visited but I just pick these things off one at a time and working on a weekly magazine you know I am seeing an enormous number of buildings you know week in week out I'm traveling to see things I was actually just the other day I've been up in uh, the West Niles of Scotland and I managed to take in a castle that I didn't even know existed on an on an island when I was up there so I mean there's <laughs> there's there's always more to see and and I'm very privileged that I travel so much and I'm able to see I love it I just love it last question then John before we sign off what impact do you think castles have had on English history I suppose I'm going to preface your answer, if that's okay, with I suppose you can't have English history without castles, I would say. I think that is true. They just are, they are part of the bedrock of our, the story of our architecture and our lives and our history. And they, of course, form a much less significant part than they did in, in the distant past. And there are many castles now represented simply by a street name or, you know, that extraordinary thing when you, you know, you do sometimes come across a castle street and there's no castle, but there might well have been there one there once. I suppose also, I, I think, you know, you will tell already from what I've said, I think it's very important that we don't put castles in a box labelled the Middle Ages and think it's all past. That you know, with buildings, I keep on coming back to this example, but there are many others I could give. You know, Windsor is still the seat of our head of state. And this is a castle that touches us today, now. It is still shaping our history. And that's true, I think, of, you know, actually quite large numbers of buildings, but not in the way that they were maybe in the 13th century or the 15th century or the 17th century, but they're still there. They're still important. It's very easy, I think, to forget how privileged we are to live 
with history in that way, to have it all around us all the time, because it's so easy to take it for granted. But there are so many parts of the world where that isn't around people in the same way. And that connection with the past, I think, is something we shouldn't take it too seriously. We should definitely try and enjoy it. But it actually touches all of us, the fact that we live in a place which has manifest roots. I think it shapes us and it also shapes people who come at the present moment people who come and live in England and come to love it or in Britain and who come to love it that sense of history shaping the world we have it's something really really important and it needs to be kept within bounds because the life needs to be lived in the present <laughs> but it's an added dimension to our sensibilities and I think we when we forget that we do a disservice to ourselves and something that we've inherited which we should take seriously and delight in. Very much so. And I think one of the things they say about living in England or living in the UK is that you're never too far away from the coast. But actually, you're actually even closer to a castle. So I think that's (laughs) probably something worth bearing in mind if you're planning a trip during a holiday or over a weekend is that you can visit a castle quite easily somewhere in the country and uh, have something to do and enjoy for a few hours at least and if the weather holds <laughs> and, and even if it doesn't it may be more memorable i don't know <laughs> no, no, but absolutely i think we need you know it's so it's so important and so wonderful such a pleasure brilliant john thank you so much for talking to us it's been really interesting and your book the castle a history is out now absolutely yes <laughs> You've been listening to the English Heritage Podcast. Next week, we'll look at the landmark trial that was the beginning of the end of the slave trade. Captain Knowles, or Stuart for that matter, did not have the legal right to detain Somerset. Even though Mansfield really took great care to freeze his ruling, it was widely perceived on both sides of the Atlantic to effectively abolish slavery. Thanks for listening. See you next time.